1: had a great weekend thank you for joining us for another episode of nightlight if you like the live shows or listening in the archives uh please subscribe to barbara's youtube channel you can leave a comment and help us to know what you think about our programming um i think Barbara slept from midnight Friday to noon today after five shows last week, Um, but you aren't going to find too many networks offering that type of variety. Um, We have our first brother and sister guest uh, tonight. Uh, We've had sisters sometime soon. We are to have a husband and wife paranormal investigation team. But what makes our guests special, aside from Dan being a beekeeper and Teresa being a counter, they are direct descendants of the famous American outlaw Jesse James. When Dan Duke's first book, Jesse James and the Lost Templar Treasure, was published last year. He he was a guest with us. Uh, Since then, he enlisted the aid of his sister Teresa Duke to help research and co-author The Mysterious Life and Faked Death of Jesse James. This book is a culmination of 20 years of research with family, court, legal records, newspaper clippings, journals, Family Legends. Um, It's a fascinating uh, book. So if you enjoy uh, the Wild West, Reconstruction-era history, uh, the mysterious life and faked death of Jesse James is something that should be on your uh, bookshelf. And we are going to be... um, Separating fact and fiction tonight of this misunderstood historical figure. Hi, hi, Teresa and Dan, how are you?
2: Fantastic. I hope y'all are all well too. We're Doing great, and thanks for having us
1: yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah, Thanks for writing another book to um, you know, keep keep us busy. I, I really enjoy. Well, I, I enjoy both of your books. But uh, yeah, this one is you know, a really well-done biography, and we'll uh, be getting into a lot more of its merits over the next couple hours. So, you know, like, what, what I said at the uh, beginning of the sh- uh, show was, you know, we did five shows last week, and... We got some emails over the weekend that made all the hard work uh, worth it. Uh, one of the emails was about Hollywood wanting to revive the Brady Bunch series. And the studio wants
0: <clears throat>
1: uh, Mary Joyce to be Marsha. Michelle Avante uh, is to play Jan. Gloria Amendola is to be Cindy. Michael Carter can be Greg. David Collis is to play Peter. And keeping everything running smoothly, Barbara can be Alice. Uh, Dan, Egan. you can... You do
2: know I'm listening and I'm sitting right here, right?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, well, yeah. Well, I, I, I you Alice, know...
1: Sir, I, I, Alice had... An important function, and Dan, Dan can I, play Sam. He's a nice-looking guy. Take take you out in town.
2: I I strongly recommend you do not quit your day job.
0: Okay, <laughs> <laughs>
1: okay. Let me let me get back to, to before I get into more trouble. Okay, so, uh, and,
2: good, good idea. Anyhow,
1: okay. So, uh, you know. I don't know, maybe, maybe Rob Sullivan and Solaris could be Mike and Carol. Um, but uh, anyhow, the, you know, the studio wanted to start off the series with uh, reworking the Jesse James episode. So, uh, Teresa, okay. if, if you were to take the place of the older guy who uh, uh, presented you know, the uh, Hollywood propaganda version of Jesse, and you were to explain to Bobby, played by me, uh, h- how would you explain who the real Jesse was to the impressionable and sweet Bobby
2: oh wow that's a good that's a great question um I that's where I'm would,
1: close to losing my job again
2: <laughs> <laughs> I would probably start off by um telling Bobby that um you know I saw that episode <laughs> believe it or not when they uh were bashing Jesse James on the show um and I, I wouldn't go that approach. Um, you know, it, I would just kind of explain to him about the war that was going on, the civil war and um how Jesse um was being true to his beliefs and his family and uh being honorable and defending his his family. Um I would being that Bobby is a little kid that's but that it would be very hard to explain, um, but I would just come out and say he was doing an honorable thing by defending his family and mm-hmm. fighting back and that they were um, abused and there's nothing wrong with defending your family and, you know, going out and rectifying that situation.
1: no and early on in... The Mysterious Life and Fake Death of Jesse James. Yeah, you do say it is confusing. There it is, you know, right there on, like, page two. You know, we're dealing with aliases, um, folklore. We never really had a good description of Jesse, other than he was about six feet tall. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, you get the, you know, did he or did he not have, uh, you know, a part of a, a missing finger? I mean, there's, like, so, so many things we don't even, uh, uh you know, r- really, you know, he, he wasn't uh, living all that long ago. And we, right. we still don't know a, a lot about him. Um, you, you know, as we go through the sh- uh, show tonight, you know, uh, I think we're gonna uh, correct some misconceptions. But it, exactly. it, it, it yeah, you, know, you do get the book started off with so, some of these. Uh, Oh, folklore a- aspects that
0: um
1: seem seem like it's more of pop culture, but once you introduce the photos and more evidence, things become a lot more clearer. Um. Oh yeah,
0: definitely.
2: Yeah.
1: And you know, um, we could start with some of the information from the the traditional view of Jesse James presented from the Jesse James Museum and Farm in Missouri. Um, what? Is the traditional story they present? You know, Dan, you want to take that one?
3: Well, the traditional story of Jesse. Well, it starts early in his life. He was around. He was a young teen around the age of fourteen. Uh, the fighting and the well, the fighting. But well, like most people think of the Civil War, that's when the fighting started. Uh, you know, when the war was declared, first fires, first shots fired. That's when it all started. But what a lot of people don't realize is in Missouri and Kansas, the war had been fought, they'd been fighting back and forth for about 10 years before the official beginning of the Civil War. And Jesse was, you know, um, Jesse was young, he was 14 by the time the war started. um, So there was already a lot of bad blood between people in Kansas and western Missouri that were raiding one another for 10 years prior to that. Frank, when the war started, Jesse's older brother, Frank, was off fighting for the regular Confederacy. And some guerrillas rode on to the farm, northern back to guerrillas from Kansas, rode on to the James farm. Jesse was plowing the field, 14 years old. They strapped him to the plow and and brutally beat him. Uh, Then they rode on to the house and pushed his pregnant mother around. Some some accounts claim that they uh, stripped her, from, you know, stripped her shirt off, tied her to a tree, and whipped her severely. Um, But either way, she got roughed up. Um, Then they took his stepfather, Dr. Reuben Samuels, and hung him, trying to get information out of him as to Frank's whereabouts, and he wouldn't tell. So they kept hanging him, and he had uh, permanent brain damage as a result of that. And Jesse, you know being a fourteen year old boy you're and those the times back then were completely different. It was a rough life, rough way of living I'm sure the that was the frontier, and characters out there, characters in the frontier were usually they had to be tough and used to rough ways so Jesse wanted revenge, which is understandable even in these days mm-hmm. payback and but nobody would take him. He was too young to fight, so he found a group who was. Who would take him? And that was Quantrill's guerrillas. If you were of fighting age, in their opinion, then you—you know—if you you could hold the pistol and shoot, that was—that was good. So uh, Jesse got involved with the guerrillas. He was very good at what he did, and over the course of the Civil War, he—he got a lot of revenge. Um, At the end of the Civil War, he rode into Lexington, Missouri, to surrender, and. Some of the, the Union soldiers who were picketed outside of Lexington shot him through the chest. So he got a bullet through his lung. Somehow he rode off, he escaped and lived. And that that was the beginning of his story. Basically, all normal Confederate soldiers were granted amnesty, but if you were a Confederate guerrilla, especially with Quantrell's gang, you didn't you, you were hunted down and executed. If they caught you, they'd kill you. So he had a choice either leave the country or stay and fight, and he chose to stay and fight. And that that's when his outlaw career began.
1: Yeah, well Dan, the summary you just gave us of you know mid teen years. Um explains you know or a- amplifies what Teresa said about you know, he jesse was uh fighting to protect his family uh, you know I'm just trying to differentiate between uh looking for social justice or something like that uh ver- versus just being a uh sociopath type uh criminal uh, there th- there was a, just a a totally different mindset from someone like you know Hannibal Lecter
2: Oh yeah definitely <laughs> yes <laughs> they had uh, I was
1: just, you know I was just trying to make a, a distinction
2: Oh yeah and
3: and yeah and well during their guerrilla years during the civil war People claim, you know, some some authors claim they were bloodthirsty killers, but the fighting was that blo- it was bloodthirsty on both sides. Uh, like his mother, his mother was pregnant the day it all started, and they they brutal, you know, they pushed her around and roughed her up. Um, and and Quantrell's guerrillas were known they didn't touch children or women, but if a man was of fighting age, which meant you know 13 up. They they had no problem. They would kill them.
2: Yeah, there was a lot. It was very intense. The political and social tensions during that time, and you know, on on both sides, it just it it was so intense that um, it it boiled over into you know just very terrible atrocities happening to both sides of yeah. people's family, and you yeah. know, he was. He he witnessed a lot, and so he just you know he was gonna take it on himself to sign up with the guerrillas and.
3: Well, another example of that, the fighting on along the border, the Kansas Missouri border, seemed less political than more of a you know revenge type fighting. Uh, it was two you know two different sides. One side started, the other side had to pay them back, and they all wanted revenge, and it just kept it got worse and worse throughout the war. Uh, like the the younger brothers, for example, uh, the you know there was Jesse and Frank James after the war. It was the James Younger gang. Their surname was Younger, Cole Younger and the and his brothers. They they nice. supported the Union before the war started, and their dad, who was a Union supporter, staunch Union supporter, was riding into town to do some business, and some Union soldiers robbed and murdered him, and that's what the. It was politics went out the window there, especially with the younger brothers, and they decided to fight with the Confederate guerrillas just as a means of getting revenge on the men who murdered their dad.
2: Yep, and roughed and roughed up their mom. And
3: yeah. oh yeah, and they also burned their uh, the the youngers themselves. They, their their mother was at home, and Union guerrillas burned their home down around them. Uh, they lived, but they they had a few seconds to get out of the house and they torched everything they owned so and they were union supporters but they were you know it was just it was a rough confusing strange place to be yeah and neither side you know if i was explaining it to a child i would try to tell them you sh- you know the better the best thing would to would have been for them to have left
0: <laughs> Yeah. You know, in the
3: long run, looking at it, you know, hindsight's always twenty-twenty. Right. Neither side had angels. Neither was an angel. You know, Jesse was wasn't an angel by any means, but he wasn't a bloodthirsty psychopath either.
2: Yeah. In times, you know, the way I look at it, in times of turmoil, and those were definitely times of great distress and turmoil. Um, you're going to have all kinds of groups, resistance groups, popping up all over. And, you know, that was their form of resistance to the unjust atrocities that were happening. They were they were rising up, and they were going to, you know, defend their families.
1: And, and uh, we're going to, in a little bit, you know, we're going to talk a little bit more about, um, you know, the bullet and,
0: <clears throat>
1: um, and some other little bits of information from the diary that you, you reproduced in the the new book. So, you know, and we'll get into that. So
0: er,
1: early on in the new book, uh, you know, you list... A number of the bank robberies, a couple pages of the bank robberies, two, three pages, starting in 1867, so it's right after the Civil War ended, a couple years, and... they would go on for nine nine years. Is that right? About a a uh, nine-year bank robbing uh, and and train robbing spree. Um, So what are some of the characteristics of the James Gang.
2: Oh, I would say that they were uh, fearless. They had they showed no fear, uh, bold and daring. Um, some would even say charismatic. Um, just you know, I, I think the main thing was just they didn't show any fear, and they just went in there and did what they you know had to do.
3: Yeah, and and again it was actually it was closer to it was closer to 15 years it was about a 14 year career of robbings from the first listed till the last um but they they like teresa mentioned he was charismatic a lot of uh it was said that women on the trains they wouldn't rob the women but women would ask for their autographs it was almost like a an, not quite a rock star, but but you know he was. It was like he was a celebrity. People would people wanted his autograph.
2: Yeah, and to some, <laughs> and depending on you know your perspective, to some he was famous, and to others he was infamous. Yeah. You know, some thought of him as a hero. Um. So yeah, just he. When you build up a legend like that, I I feel like you know you're going to have all kinds of. Truths and untruths attached to you. So with the legend, when you build up that kind of...
3: Reputation.
2: Yeah, reputation, you know, there may be, there's going to be a lot of truth in there and a lot of untruths about, you know... He
3: was considered, you know, a lot of people, he was bold, he was fearless. Yeah. Along with the men, and not just Jesse, everybody rode with him. Oh, yeah. Bold, fearless, they'd just gone through a civil war, and they were very good at what they did, which was killing their enemies then they turned to robbing and they that was compared to the war i'm sure robbing was very, fairly easy for them oh yeah um, and you know they had no other choice because they were outlawed to begin with so they lived up to that outlaw brand but they um oh there was something i was going to add to that and i can't remember what it was now oh it'll it, it'll come to me later but they had they they their. Hero status was greatly bolstered by their friend John Newman Edwards, who was a he was a reporter, and he would he would write long columns just you know praising the James Gang and damning everybody who was out to get them. Um, and and when the Pinkerton detective agency got involved, and they bombed his family's home, killing his stepbrother, or his yeah his half brother, not stepbrother, killing his half brother. And who was at the time nine years old, and it blew his mother's arm off and wounded his stepfather's hand that that just that really bolstered their image nationwide
2: yeah yeah John Newman Edwards really did seem to be very he was instrumental in um building up that legendary status of Jesse James and the other gorillas um but it did seem like Jesse. Uh, for some reason, it was Jesse who stood out. You know they would talk about the other daring feats of the gorillas, but it was Jesse James who stood out it, it yeah,
1: you, know, you do include the example after. The first robbery where uh, George Wymore was was he the uh, little boy who was um, accidentally killed and there's supposedly this letter that Jesse wrote apologizing that he, uh, you know he uh, that wasn't the intent uh, you, you know the uh Young yeah. son wasn't supposed to be um you know ki- uh, no one was supposed to be killed and he uh you know whether or not this letter is um, you know was really written or if it was written by jesse uh, it, there's something there that adds like a you know mystique yeah you, know, you know they aren't you know, really trying to hurt people, you know, the, you know they want the money, uh, you know, the casualties uh, weren't supposed to happen, you know, there's, there like, some regret there. Uh, but it, it goes back to what Teresa was saying was, you know, it's kind of like these dashing guys are, you know, showing up on the train, like the uh, ladies want, you know, the autograph, hey, I was robbed by Jesse James. He didn't take anything, but he got his autograph. Yeah, it's like people wanting to marry uh, Charles Manson.
3: Yeah,
2: (laughs) yeah.
3: Yeah, Yeah, Wymore was 17, I believe. Yeah, he
2: was 17. He was,
3: which would place him near, a little younger than most of the gang members at that time, but very near their same age. So, you know, they wouldn't have looked at it, in my opinion, as as if they were shooting a, a kid it was somebody their own age and you yeah. know that makes a world of difference when, especially when you're that age but they they supposedly kept telling him move in in the way i picture it and it's not a good thing there's no way to justify that but they kept telling him get out of the street and he he froze probably in fear and one of the one of the gang members shot him
2: yeah it was like a stray bullet no
3: I... they they shot him to move him out of well it, in various accounts yeah. sometimes they say it was stray others say he was you know they shot him yeah but uh, either way the the guy died and it was regrettable right it, Jesse writing the letter shows remorse i'm sure that doesn't really help you know his family members George wymore's family members but uh, at the same time i mean this was shortly after the war that mindset was still with them and i'm sure they had remorse but at the same time they'd just gone through years of killing countless numbers of people and it was probably i'm sure they were fairly cold-hearted towards a lot of what they did. I mean, if you imagine say a special forces group and they've got a target, anything that stands in their way is either there's going to be moved somehow and that's how that trying to to see it through their eyes, that's the best I can come up with. Uh, there's no excuses for it and it was bad. He was remorseful, but oh, and we visited that that museum in Liberty and uh, the bank museum and we asked to see a copy of the letter, and they they wouldn't show us a copy because they claimed the guy who owns the bank today has uh, is deeply affected by by that by George or Mister Wymore's death. I, I didn't understand that so many years later, but at the same, maybe he is. But we we weren't able to to see the letter. Okay. Well, uh, the,
1: it, it, it's an interest. It just adds more to uh the mystique
2: oh yeah definitely
1: okay, and uh, let's see you know, you have quite a few other uh, uh you know bank robberies uh, listed uh, uh across like pages um you know, like 10 to 14 or so but um it seems like they were doing what maybe a couple each year that they seem like they were uh, you know far distances apart and you know later on in the book uh you, you two write that um uh you know the gang was uh, the, you know the James gang was extremely cautious and calculated so you know they're they're going to you know from you know places like Texas in, into Minnesota yeah I mean, so it it's you know just the you know get there is you know a lengthy trip uh it, they have to be uh scouting out uh you know when the banks open you know the customers you know who's uh, you know, uh making you know like the you know like maybe the richest looking people making you know, deposits on what day it, uh, you know, it it seems like you know they really had this bank robbing down to a science
2: they did. Yeah, they said that they were the basically the first ones to actually invent. Um, they were so bold and daring, and um, they were actually the first ones to come in, according to sources, on horseback in broad daylight, and go in and rob them, and leave. And they were always, you know, hooting and hollering and shouting. And after they were exiting the bank robbery. Um, but they said that each year you know they just got more daring with their ex, with their robberies, and a lot of them are um sources said that they were the ones who invented the bank robbery <laughs> and trains too the trains too mm-hmm.
1: yeah uh, uh, um, you yeah, know I, I i you know wanted to touch on that, but, you know I might as well do that now what you know they went from Bank robbing to, you know, the train robberies. Uh, were were the trains in the station? Uh, do, do you know much about how they pulled off the uh, train robberies? Uh, that sounds sounds like it would, would have been that that would have taken a lot of time to see what was going on uh how they knew w- which train you know was which which one was uh you know carrying something of value
3: that's another thing i always we we have always suspected that they had inside information uh oh. in in some in many cases um uh, they they would rob they would stop a train other times they were on the train and they would rob it while it was going, but they would get off at a at a pre-des, you know a predetermined location uh, you know that way they had people on the ground also with horses so they could make a quick getaway but there were a lot of a lot of their robberies they are said to have uh well if you just just studying their robberies it seemed as if they had to have had inside information they always had a a decent take sometimes it was a great take um you know what they got away with but it seems, and we've also heard rumors from other researchers claiming that, like, if they if they hit a gold shipment on a train, the, the guy shipping the gold had it insured. And some have claimed that the shipper of the gold from, say, California was insured and would tip somebody off. So in that way, the, the gold would be robbed, the insurance would pay the, the owner of the gold, and it, in a way, it was doubling their money. If they were all in the same group, I'm not sure how true that is, but it it doesn't, you know. I don't count things like that out. There's just no proof about that yet, so it it makes sense, you know. It rob hit the hit the gold shipment. The guy who tipped them off get he doesn't lose anything. He's got insurance to cover it, so they're doubling their money that way. They've got cash and gold. Hmm. Okay. There's a lot of <laughs> theories about that, and that that's where it gets kind of murky on their exact tactics, and they were very secretive. They, uh, When they hit a target, it was well scouted out. And it just seems like it would have taken a few more people in higher places to have tipped them off on some of the, the robberies they did.
1: Yeah, I was just wondering about that. It, 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 it's really uh, interesting... Uh, You know, like crime scene investigation, you know, you're going to get that, uh, you know, on today's TV shows, but it is interesting how successful they were pulling that off in the
3: 1870s. Exactly. There's another example of of those types of connections that I know of, and it's a fact. Well, parts of it are still a mystery, but the – Ackabock bank robbery they did in court in Iowa. they They were in court in Iowa. The, the, if you read the events in the town around before the robbery, there was a big a lot of people were pushing to have a railroad come through town, which would increase business and help their prosperity. Everybody in town wanted the railroad through, except for a few people, and those few were the ones who controlled most of the money. the Ackabock brothers who owned the Akabak Bank. So they didn't want the railroad, and they weren't gonna. They weren't gonna. Uh, oh, donate to have it, you know, have the to the fund. So uh, Henry Clay Dean, who was a politician, and he he was a well known. They called him the uh, Copperhead. Copper. He was a Copperhead, which was an. They were Southern sympathizers in the North during the war. He even carried a copperhead, uh, a copper, a walking stick with a little brass copperhead on top of it. He was known as a fiery orator. And when he gave speeches, he would draw people from 50 miles away. And back in those days, 50 miles was a long, long way to go. So uh, in the day of the robbery, Henry Clay Dean, who supported the railroad, was in town giving a fiery speech, but he was on the other side of town from the bank. So the, most of the town went there. Everybody in the area went to the other side of town, leaving just a few people around the bank. And Jesse and his, the gang rode in, robbed the bank. It was real easy. And they're said to have even – they rode past the uh, the speech given by Henry Clay Dean and, and uh, interrupted shortly to let everybody know the bank was robbed. The crowd looked at them like, <laughs> be quiet, you're interrupting the speech and quit playing jokes. And Jesse and the gang laughed and rode away. They got – nope, the, the townspeople didn't realize until minutes later, and by then the gang was gone. But I always wondered, knowing that Henry Clay Dean was a well-known southern sympathizer during the Civil War and still held those political beliefs, you can't help but wonder if he wasn't involved. He served as a great distraction. And if he wasn't involved, that was great planning on their side, the gang side, just knowing that the the town would be on the the opposite end of, you know, the town's people would be on the opposite end of the town during the robbery.
2: Hey, hey Dan. Yes. Um. Was it the James Gang that robbed the train and blew the safe up with dynamite and blew all the money up too?
3: I think that was Butch Cassidy, the Sundance oh, Kid. Oh, okay. Yeah, that was <laughs> that was that's a funny story. But uh, yeah, <laughs> after the the Court in Iowa robbery, they all fled to Nebraska towards Nebraska, and shortly after that, Jesse our great great grandfather entered Texas and purchased the diary that we have. He started making entries and he purchased it in Decatur, Texas.
1: Okay. And it I noticed on page fourteen that the uh last time uh, one you know, of your family members came to West Virginia they robbed a local bank. So, yes, you know, when, when I've seen Teresa's photos and she, you know, just wonder, you know, okay, is she protecting herself from the virus or is she going to do, do a hold holdup?
0: <laughs> so so
2: can't
1: take you guys anywhere.
2: I know. <laughs> it's terrible.
1: But there, yeah, there's like, and yeah you know, a few weeks uh season messino was her, and we were talking about uh, uh hank williams supposedly died en route from some after some concert uh going to another place and he supposedly died in the back seat of that uh, Cadillac, so uh, and that that was near Huntington. So, uh, uh, that that uh, little piece of information uh, I thought was interest in- interesting. You know, local, you know, kind of a local connection, but yeah, uh, uh-huh.
0: you
1: know, that was like September fifth, eighteen seventy five. But um, yeah, it, it, that just shows the extent of how far that they were going to uh these banks in Iowa and Minnesota um,
3: yeah, oh and you had mentioned that earlier the uh, multiple robberies in different locations near the same time and some some people claim, you know, you, and some still do that it was a copycat robberies, which it, you know, some could have been. But okay. The robberies were always in the same way. It was the same M.O. that the James Gang used. And, I mean, these guys had gone through the war. They were professionals. They they were very – basically robbing banks was like hitting a target during the war. And knowing they had that mindset, all the guerrillas during the war, they wouldn't attack one target at the same time unless it was, you know, in their minds a special target, and they needed everybody. But uh, in a lot of cases, they would hit – multiple targets at once it kept people off guard nobody knew what you know where they were going to hit or when and when they did they would hit several targets at the same time and i think they employed that same method in the robberies years later uh wood height who was jesse's first cousin and bore a strong is said to have borne a strong resemblance to jesse um he he would head he would hit certain towns at the same time jesse and the others were hitting another town so you know that that would, in my opinion, explain the multiple robberies in distant locations on the same day.
1: Okay. Interesting. Uh, yeah. I, you know, this is just a, a really a fascinating story, and you, know, you also cover uh, the Shady Villa Inn has a safe that was robbed by Jesse James and Pancho Villa.
3: Yeah,
1: in Salado, Texas,
3: we went and visited that. and they still have the, uh, the safe is there. It's an interesting old safe, and they they still tell the same story to this day. Uh, Jesse was said to have robbed it, and that was only, I believe, eight to eight or about around ten miles from where Jesse lived in Texas. So uh, and, you know, nobody had a a good description of of Jesse. An accurate description, except for his family and fellow gang members. So it wouldn't have been a hard thing for him to pull off and just get away. Or, and they also robbed a stage south of Austin, a stagecoach between San Antonio and Austin.
1: Okay, and, and we're going to uh, get get into the uh, riverboat uh, robbery in a little bit. Uh, okay. Yeah, and, 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 and I all this is just uh, really fascinating about you know the planning <clears throat> that went into all, all of this, but yeah, um, you know, you, uh, you know n- note that the the um, Northfield Bank robbery in Minnesota was the. Last
3: documented robbery of
1: the James Gang.
3: Yeah, the original gang. They they today to this day they have a festival in Northfield, Minnesota. The end of the James Gang, um, and they they claim Jesse was there. We don't believe Jesse was there. We believe it was Wood Height in Northfield, Minnesota. That was a oh, uh, uh-huh. it it wasn't that one went wrong in every way that could possibly go wrong for the gang the townspeople were ready they expected it which you know they hadn't run up to against before uh all the town the men who expected it they just got out of the civil war they fought for the north and it was they were ready and waiting uh so the gang rides in tried to rob the bank the younger brothers got shot up they all made it out of town except for i believe clell miller died in town um but the james younger gang got out of town but the younger brothers were so shot up they they didn't make it they got caught ended up in prison and it said tradition according to the traditional story that jesse and frank got away um we don't believe it was jesse we believe it was wood height and frank that got away and jesse was here according to his diary our great-great-grandfather's diary he was here in texas um but the interesting thing, so we thought, okay, if Jesse was here in Texas, how could he have been up there? And, you know, that, that just warranted more, more and more research, as much as we could find. Jesse was here. We know they traditionally, they, the traditional history says that if Jesse was in Northfield, we believe it was Wood Height. They bore a strong resemblance. Uh, it is documented, though, that Frank went from Northfield, Minnesota, with a bullet in his knee, great pain, and rode a train. Rode in different. He, he went from horse to train. He finally caught a train and made it to Waco, Texas. If you had a bullet in your knee in Minnesota, back in those days when travel was long, hard, and slow, why would you wait that long and go all the way across the country? I mean, he could have gone to Colorado or he could have gone east into Kentucky or any number of places. But he came to Waco and... They claim that Jesse and Frank came to Waco. We know Frank came to Waco, had the bullet removed by a doctor, and then it said they, they retreated to their ranch that they had in Texas. Well, they claim the ranch was out in West Texas. It wasn't in West Texas. It was 30 miles south of Waco in Blevins, Texas, on their farm, on Jesse's farm. Just a real interesting story, and they people around Waco we're always trying to locate the doctor that did the surgery on Frank and removed the bullet but that that news can't be found anywhere okay S- since
1: you know we're talking you know uh wrapping up a uh what well, you said about a 14 year uh, crime spree any um, you know, document that <clears throat> I just say this uh, the blue cut train robbery netted about fifteen thousand um, so, know, dollars you have lots of other uh figures uh Chicago and Alden railroad train robbery uh was estimated to be about thirty thousand to fifty thousand dollars. Uh, you know, that's You know, probably at, at In the 1870s You know, that's some Staggering sums of money That's what, I don't know Half a million dollars today
3: Yeah, that's a lot of money And yeah I'd, yeah, have, it, to you know, know. I'd have to get, and I've done it before I would, I just don't remember this The uh, conversion, the difference The interest calculators you can find on on a search engine, and I would type in the amount as early as I could. Sometimes they go, they only go to like eighteen ninety, but but yeah, you can get a rough estimate of how much it would be in today's dollars, and it was it was very large amounts.
1: Yeah. So, so okay, J- Jesse is, you uh, yeah, you have to do something with it. Uh, you know, yeah, I'm sh- sure you can't. Even though there really wasn't uh i r s you know you can't deposit that in a bank uh yeah you know, thats gonna draw too much attention you have to do something with uh that you know large sums of money money so in your first book uh Jesse James and the lost Templar treasurer uh yeah you, know, you do talk about seems like he you know, had some in and under his house oh yeah uh buried yeah buried at other places uh, it, uh, you know to find all the mason jars and <laughs> things like that um you know, he he had a System of locating where he deposited, uh, you know, the uh, loot. Um, Dan, can can you go back to you know, your first book and tell us, you know, a little, a little bit about, you know, the uniform distances
3: and measurements, how and what all that means okay and before i i mention that um i just typed in, in in the in an inflation calculator online uh fifteen thousand dollars in 1880 would be according to the inflation calculator worth three hundred and seventy seven thousand dollars today so that that's a pretty big that's a very big take <laughs> it's enough to buy a really nice home you know so in most parts of the country so I just wanted to. I, while you were, you mentioned the uh, fifteen thousand. I wanted to see how much that was worth today. Um, so 300, 350000 three hundred, three hundred fifty thousand today. You know, three hundred three hundred and seventy-seven thousand forty-two dollars in today's money.
1: Wow. Okay, so. Yeah, okay, this, just, yeah, th- this happened. Engine yeah you know, multiple times, you know, okay, he's splitting it with uh you, you know the other members of the gangs you know they have to do something with it, so uh, that was what your first book was about so
3: uh, yeah that that tied in with the treasure side of it. We'd always heard and you know we'd always heard the treasure stories he had a lot of treasure gold and and silver and coins buried in mason jars. Uh there's a mysterious one a lot of the the family members were trying to find that was alleged to have been encased in a concrete ball and buried and they alleged you know some some relatives said they never they never found it others said they did uh but they wouldn't say who or where so it was you know there's a lot of and I'm sure the ones who claimed they did were probably, they didn't want they didn't want that showing up on on their bank statements or tax records i had a i had a I have a feeling a lot of that came from trying to hide the tax. They they wouldn't want the government taking it. Uh, there's an Antiquities Act in the U.S. that states that, I believe it's any buried treasures found that are over 100 years old fall under the Antiquities Act. So, you know, they're, I know if I've read stories of uh, treasure hunters finding things, and every once in a while you hear of them finding sunken ships off the coast, and the government takes it, and the finder usually gets a small percent so but uh yeah we we started hunting down the treasure legends there was a map that had passed down through the family and we you know o- over the years when i had extra time i would get into that trying to trying to figure it out and it was very hard there was this template that they supposedly used that was attributed to the knights of the golden circle and the knights of the golden circle were for those who don't know they were a uh, secretive organization that sided with the Confederacy during the Civil War. During the war, their goal was to halt or slow Union movements, you know, troop movements, burning bridges, things like that. After the war, it's claimed that they hid treasures all over the U.S., Canada, and Mexico for the goal of uh, refunding a second Civil War at some point in history. When I started Researching all the treasures that were attributed to them, like some had claimed that Victoria Peak in New Mexico, which was a very large treasure, said to have been discovered, it was even mentioned in the Watergate hearings, back in you know with Nixon, oh. um, that the treasures that were said to have been there predate by centuries any involvement of the Knights of the Golden Circle. So I I've, and after several other treasures attributed to it had had. Had, a, or that had been connected with Jesse and the groups he was involved with It, in my opinion did, um, you know, it counts out any involvement of the Knights of the Golden Circle if they had any involvement I think it was much smaller than most people believe they, they were kind of made into the oh they were a shadowy figure there's not much known about them and they were it was basically if there's a treasure a lot of people believed that it had to have been the KGC so, uh, but I discounted that in my mind, and in my just all the research I'd done, most of the treasures that I that had been located had predated them. So I counted those guys out. I know that when Jesse came to Texas, he he was living under an alias as a peaceable citizen. His alias was James Lafayette Courtney. The Courtneys were related to and friends with the James family in Missouri. So it was a uh, an easy name to remember and use. And uh, so he, he used that name. Under that name, living as a peaceable citizen, he became a Mason, a Freemason here in Texas. I don't know if he was a member before he came to Texas or if he joined when he was in Texas. Um, but the treasures, not I believe the the treasures tie in with Freemasonry, and that, that's where my first book came out. And I traced it mm-hmm. from Jesse through different well-known Freemasons like Albert Pike uh, back to the Founding Fathers, and to Francis Bacon, his mentor, John Dee, all the way back through various rabbis, uh, Jewish rabbis. And that led me to uh, a rabbi known as Rashi, who was the close friends and the favored court guest of Hugh de Champagne, who was the uh, Count of Champagne, one of the founders of the Knights Templar, the original <laughs> founders. So, I mean, it, I traced it back in that book all the way to the Templar, The template, the way it laid out, that was a mystery in itself, and I hope I'm not getting ahead of myself.
1: Oh no, no, you're fine, Dan. Okay,
3: the template was very, very complicated to to uh, determine the scale and size of it and how it was laid out, and you know, I was for years I couldn't figure it out. It was driving me crazy, (laughs) so to speak, and then I finally we um, the Former Attorney General of the State of Texas, Wagner Carr, he was very interested in Jesse James as well, and it, at, in the beginning he 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 believed that another guy was Jesse by the name of J. Frank Dalton. My mother and my sister and I had we, helping our mother. We debunked the, uh, the the claim that J. Frank Dalton was Jesse, but we do believe J. Frank Dalton was was greatly involved in some in some Part of it, the treasures. Um, so, Wagner Carr, former Attorney General, of the State of Texas, believed our mother's story and our story. Um, he he had his driver show my mother and me where several large treasures were recovered. When he showed us those, in addition to a, another man by the name of George Roaming, who was also a Freemason and a, a Shriner. He, he was, George was hired when he was a boy by my great-great-grandfather to help him move and bury 700 bars of gold. He said they buried 680 bars, each weighing 15 pounds, and Jesse kept 20 for himself. Uh, and he, he wrote us, drew a map out and showed us where it was buried. It happens to be on Fort Hood, the military reserve north of here, so, you know, I'm not going to even attempt to, to get on that property. Um, if it's even still there, but the locations is that that was what helped me determine the value. I mean, the uh, size and scale of the template. And over time, I found out it was three templates. It all tied in with various mystic traditions, like the Jewish Jewish mysticism, Kabbalah, and other traditions, the Christian Kabbalah, and uh, a lot of a lot of readings I'd done that were written by Albert Pike also helped discovered you know, the the symbols were found everywhere mostly in masonry rosicrucian studying the rosicrucians and Jewish mysticism and I hope I I explained that well that's a mouthful
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, the I, whole I, thing I, is no, all of it is
1: no, it,
3: it, it's
0: I had it's a, a captivating
3: rele- book yeah it yeah. is it's a very interesting story it goes uh, it takes you, it, it's, it's almost. I had a relative ask me to explain it to him. We only had about five or ten minutes, and I told him there is no way I can explain this story in five or ten minutes. I mean, it it just keeps going. Yeah. And it's got so many – everything – every character in the story connects to another, you know, a different character or group, and then that just ties back all the way to the Templar. It, it's it, Yeah,
2: it leads you to a lot of different – what we – you know, like, what we find fascinating about this whole journey, um, when my mom started this, she just wanted to prove that Jesse James didn't die in 1882, like history stated, and she thought, you know, she thought that that's all she was going to go in and prove, and it just led to so much more. I mean, there's there's a lot of intrigue and a lot of mystery with this whole, you know, journey that we've been on, and does. Like Danny said, it just leads down multiple rabbit holes, and it's just all been really fascinating.
3: One great example of how it ties in with other figures is Jesse's diary, our Gregory Grandfather's diary, for example. He mentions mm-hmm. a trip that he and his, the men with him took to Louisiana. They went to Shreveport, Louisiana, hopped a steamboat mm-hmm. by the name of Amelia Labarge. They, they rode the steamboat downriver to Natchitoches, Louisiana, Got off the the steamboat, hit a road and rode back north, the opposite direction they would just traveled on a road. They stayed overnight at a man's house and the man's name was Gervais Fontenot. Well, I wanted, I thought, okay, who's this Gervais Fontenot? You know, that's an interesting name. Uh, you don't hear that often in Central Texas. I know it's common in Louisiana, but I wanted to, I wanted to research him, and I found out I found the guy's family tree. Um, doing his genealogy, he was the nephew of Jean Lafitte, the famous pirate. And I thought, I mean, that, that's just, that was mind-blowing. I thought, my God, there's Jesse James and the James gang on a robbing spree, and everywhere they went in that, that, uh, along that trip that he documents in his diary, there were robberies. Even the, not the same steamboat, but another steamboat had been robbed shortly around the same time. So while they were in Louisiana, every place they went, there was a stage robbed and a steamboat robbery, and there was another stage in North Louisiana robbed. And then to find out that Jesse stayed the night at Jean Lafitte's nephew's house, that just ties it in with a lot of other interesting tidbits of history. And it, it, makes it, it shows, in my opinion, a, a lot, much larger connection than just Old West Outlaw's you know, robbing a bank to go have some fun in a, at a saloon somewhere. It was much more organized and had deeper goals behind it. And, and Lafitte, for example, Jean Lafitte, a lot of people think, oh, he was just a famous pirate. He helped the U.S. defeat the British in New Orleans. And before that happened, he was, and this is this is a historical fact, he had Masonic communications with Andrew Jackson which suggests to me mm. that Jean Lafitte himself was a Freemason. I mean, how could you have a Masonic communication if both parties weren't Masons? Good that, point. That ties back into to the treasure story in the book I'd written.
1: Oh, and you also say uh, Gervais uh, Fontenot was also
3: uh, a retired U.S. Marshal. Exactly. He was Lafitte's nephew, and he was a retired U.S. marshal.
1: So it, yeah, you know, that um, could be a little bit of a stretch, but you know, yeah. it, it's things like that where, yeah, you, know, you can get a retired marshal to you know, maybe,
3: but that's mildly work. Yeah, you know, uh, get, get the insider information. Yeah, and if you look back at like the Texas Rangers in those days, a lot of the Texas Rangers hopped both. They rode both sides of the fence. Sometimes they were rustling cattle or or doing other criminal activity, and other times they were they would wear the badge and go out and catch the same people who had done the same things they had done. Uh, back in those days, a lot of a lot of the Texas Rangers in the beginning and through the. You know, up until the late 1800s were known to have been many of them not all of them but many of them had had criminal backgrounds themselves and the other point in all of that is they just come through a civil war and that's where allegiances start getting you you get into a lot of gray areas there uh fontenot was a southerner His many of the people in his family fought for the south um he was, I believe, too old at the time to have fought in the, you know, in the war, but uh, they, they'd, they, their allegiances were, I guess, put to the test is a good way to say it. I mean, are you a U.S. marshal or are you fellow Southerner? Are you a U.S. marshal or, you know, or a Freemason? Mm-hmm. I don't, you know, I don't have any records claiming that Gervais was a Freemason, but I know he was involved in some way, and his, his. His story requires much further investigation in my opinion just to, because there's a I think there's a good story there. I'm just not sure where it will lead
1: oh it's you know the diary is interesting and yeah you know, your first book has all these maps and drawing art. Artwork, and you know one of the uh, like the central structure that um, amplifies your yeah uh, masonic theme is the uh, bruton parish church um can, can- you explain a little bit about the significance of this church that uh what like most of the founding fathers um, uh, uh attended at least
3: one service there yeah when i when I was researching the, the scale and dimensions of the template. Um, I've, I came across you know, other information that led to the second template, which is in the shape of the tree of life. And it falls in, the, the, the original template makes a form of a, uh, a veil, actually three veils, because there's three sizes, uh, large, medium, and small. And it, it ties in perfectly with Kabbalistic beliefs, and, uh, you know, Christian, Jewish, and even occult uh, Kabbalah, um, they're, they have three veils of negative existence, which ties in with the tree of life. Uh, everything that I'd studied involving the first template I'd I discovered was, you know, it tied in with, all, with you know, the Jewish mysticism, um, Rosicrucianism, Freemason, stuff like that. But I wanted to find out the distance between... Victoria peak and the bruton parish church uh because i'd read a book from marie and i'm i'm getting ahead of myself a bit marie bauer hall who was the wife of manly palmer hall he was a well-known 33rd degree freemason and author and lecturer um very just his books are fascinating by the way but he uh marie bauer hall's book she wrote this before she married uh, manly palmer hall she uh she had been researching, and it's a fascinating book as well, it's uh, Foundations Unearthed is the name of the book. She had written about, she researched Francis Bacon. Uh, She'd found what she believed were encryptions and ciphers in many of the writings of Shakespeare, and those same ciphers, she would find similar ciphers in the cemetery at the Bruton Parish Church. She discovered through decrypting those ciphers that there was an original church foundation. The, the church today wasn't sitting on its, you know, at, at the original foundation. It, it was near it, but not on the foundation. A lot of historians didn't believe her, and she proved them wrong. She she excavated and exposed the original foundations that 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 proved that the ciphers and all the, you know, all of everything she'd been researching was correct. She went further to state that there was a vault, twenty-two, I believe it was 22 feet below the cemetery, that was said to have hidden, according to her, um, uh, great treasures and information um, that would basically rock history if, if it were discovered and made public. And uh, they, she started to excavate for that and then was put to a... They, somebody, you know, the, the townspeople, the people in charge put, put a stop to it and didn't allow her to dig. I think she even spent a night in the jail in the local in the town. But uh so they they put a stop to it. Somebody didn't want her digging and that ended. But, but I wanted to know how far that was from Victoria Peak. It was 1715 miles and over, over the over the years I would keep I kept finding that number 1715 popping up in different areas of the research. Huh? Uh, like the the church itself is 1,715 feet from the Wren building at the College of William and Mary right down the street. Christopher Wren also ties into this story. Uh, he was a Freemason, a member of the Royal Society, and he is said to have designed that building, and that's why they named it after him. There's said to be tunnels that run under Williamsburg from the vault to different locations, homes, and possibly even the Wren the Wren Building, it, it just keeps getting deeper and deeper. But tracing all these names back, um, oh, and before I get ahead of myself, it, the template, I kept working with it, and it made the perfect shape of a, the Kabbalistic tree of life, the top of it being at the Bruton Parish in Williamsburg, Virginia, and the bottom at the Recovered Treasure at Victorio Peak in New Mexico.
0: Yeah.
3: And, oh, and yeah, it just, okay. just keeps going. <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to keep rambling on, but it just it keeps going and gets deeper and uh-huh. deeper, and everything connects in. Everything about the template and the treasures on the Tree of Life template tie in perfectly with the Veil template that I first, you know, discovered the dimensions to.
1: No, no, yeah, and, and you place a lot of importance on the Victoria Peak. Uh, Site in you know, the Lost Templar Treasure book. You know, so, yeah, you know, don't want to give everything away. It's,
3: you know,
1: uh, you know a few audience members that need to go out and get get a copy of that one too. But you know, even
3: give, I even give the directions on how to find it. it I mean, it's, it'll take you a little work, quite a bit of work, but I give people starting points and the uh, dimensions, the the distances and measurements. So, if you Want to work at it? You can find. You may be able to find a lot of interesting things.
1: Okay. Well, hopefully soon we can have a, a caller call in and tell us they found it. Yeah. But uh, you know, let's bring Teresa back in here and yeah, uh, you know, discuss some of the. Photos that she rediscovered uh, you have a number of. A funeral photo is Jesse uh, attending his own funeral. Um, some of the uh, the the reversed um, I- images on the photos you know uh, we need to get into explaining how all that fits into uh yeah you know, the 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 story that at some point Jesse died and yeah you know, we have these uh you know, photos that prove that he lived on according to what your research says. So, uh, Teresa, can, can you tell us a little bit about some of these uh, photos that ha- you just know, disc- uh, rediscovered? What do they mean to the story?
2: Well, um, there's so many of the, the, the photos that, you know, match with the famous, historically accepted version of Jesse James with our family photos of, you know, what what we call Grandpa Courtney. That was his alias when he, you know, faked his death and moved to Texas. Um, But, yeah, I mean, we have a lot of photos. We have one where um, he is actually sitting – there's just so much to it. Like, he's sitting with his mother in a wedding photo. And it means a lot um, because, I, you know, a lot of people may not know this, but history uh, shows that his mother had her own, her arm blown off from the Pinkerton detectives. His mother, mm-hmm. Jesse James's mother, Geralda, um and we have a picture, uh, we call it the eBay photo picture, because that's, um, you know, where it was auctioned off of in, on eBay when we first found out about it. Um, but it shows our grandfather, our great-great-grandfather, in that picture with Zerelda and Frank James and his wife. Um, and in that picture, Zerelda it has... Her arm missing, so that's one way to distinguish uh, there's there's just so much in that picture to show it points back that that's our grandfather um, and the person who identified that that was Grandpa Courtney in that picture uh, was related was Jesse and Frank James's nephew and he identified that. Is our great grandfather in the picture? So that was that was just one. That was like the smoking gun of pictures. It was just so much to it. Um, and then I found a picture uh, later on. Now it hasn't been verified, but you know we we do want to get it verified. But if you look at the picture, I mean it's really, I mean there's a lot to it. Um, he's standing next to his mother. Uh, and it's at Jesse James's funeral, and rumors always had it that there was um, a mysterious pallbearer at the funeral, and a lot of people. It was rumored that it was Jesse James, and so that kind of coincides with this photo that I found.
3: Yeah, he looks. Like, he looks. In our opinion, he looks. Exa- that is our great great grandfather. I mean, they, they are. And we we show on the website and in the book uh, the photos, and it's just it's strikingly it's a striking similarity. I mean, I, we, it, there's no doubt in our mind that it's him standing next to Zarelda, and we believe the guy in the co- coffin is more than likely Wood Height, his first cousin.
1: Okay, and Dan, you've mentioned uh, Wood Height a couple times as uh, probably being. At a, a couple of these uh, bank robberies or the train robbery uh, you know, at this uh, location. Uh, so can can you uh, and, and they look very similar since they were first cousins? Can can you explain a little bit about your theory of the person in the coffin?
3: Okay, there was well the. Traditional history claims that in eighteen eighty two April eighteen eighty two Jesse James was had been living in Saint Joseph, Missouri under the alias of Thomas Howard. And that he was in the house with his wife and children. It one the, the morning that or when that happened, the morning that happened, Bob and Charlie Ford were said to have been there. Uh, they were allegedly working for the governor, Governor Crittenden. To try to bring in Jesse dead or alive And most people Anybody who knew anything about Jesse back then They they felt it was impossible To bring him in alive So they would have to kill him And the, the traditional story says that Jesse stepped up on a chair Took his guns off Stepped up on a chair With a feather duster To either straighten or dust A sampler on the wall That said something like God bless this home Or home sweet home Something like that Um uh, so he stood up on this chair to dust it or straighten it, and Bob Ford drew his 44 and shot Jesse in the back of the head. So that you know, that was the end of Jesse, according to traditional history. Uh, Bob and Charlie went and turned themselves in immediately, and were sentenced to hang, but the governor gave them a pardon and they were released. And that that's just how that's the story. Um, Wood Height, his cousin. There's a lot of lot of controversy on when he actually died. Woodhite was said by some accounts to have died in December of 1881, several months before Jesse was said to have been killed. Uh, other people say it was just a week before Jesse was killed. So there's a lot of discrepancy on when he actually died. And when they claim that's a preposterous claim from us, you know, our detractors will say that's preposterous. It couldn't have been Woodhite, because so many people identified him. Well, first of all. Very few actually knew what Jesse, very few could identify Jesse except his friends and family. His friends were very loyal and may have been afraid to even say anything that Jesse, you know, that would have made Jesse mad. Um, The family was loyal and they wanted to help their, their family member. So as far as identity goes, the law and no one else except for a small group of people actually knew what he looked like. And his friends and family had been known. To have lied before claiming that he was dead when he tried to fake his death in 1879. So, you know, there's a lot of that, their claims on that are blown out of the water. Um, and now I'm, I'm starting to, there were several paths I could have taken on that answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: but we, we just have so many photos. Oh, well, yeah. That's what yeah. I was
3: going to, before I forget. Yeah. Um, Wood Height was, had, there was a love, some kind of love triangle going uh, between Wood Height. And Bob and Charlie Ford's sister, Martha Bolton, she lived in in a farmhouse. She owned a farmhouse. Uh, She she'd been seen, or she was involved romantically with Woodhite, and it said she was involved with her farmhand, Jim Gibson. There was a fight that happened. Jim Gibson and Woodhite both died in that. It was a gunfight. Uh, It's claimed that Woodhite was buried in a shallow grave, and that was that. The day that Jesse was allegedly killed, they displayed that body like a trophy, as they did with all, you know, most outlaws back in those days. Wood Heights' body was allegedly found and brought in, but nobody displayed it. I thought, well, why? Why wouldn't they? When he was a big part of the James Gang as well, and his first cousin, no display of his body that was allegedly found that day. We believe it was Wood Height who was shot in the back of the head by Bob Ford. Um, and the story of the shooting itself is thrown off. Oh, and another thing real quick. To this day, nobody can identify the location of Woodhite's grave. We ask them, okay, if you're so sure Woodhite wasn't the man, where's his grave? No one can find it. We believe that's because he was passed off as Jesse. And nobody knows where the farmhand was either. Uh, if you look at, like, the, the the photograph of Jesse in his coffin, what they say is Jesse in his coffin... At the funeral, doesn't look quite like the photograph of Jesse's body right after he was assassinated, and we think the body of the assassinated man was either Woodhite or the farmhand, and the guy in the coffin was either Woodhite or the farmhand. <laughs> so they got it was there was some body switching going on, I believe, and it wasn't hard to do back in those days. All they had to do was you know switch out a coffin.
2: Well, and it's just. What are the odds and uh, that, that, you know, when they are saying that Jesse James was assassinated, that they find his cousin, his first cousin, who looks so similar to Jesse James.
3: On the same day.
2: Yeah, I mean. Then,
3: yeah, also at the shooting itself, when Bob was said to have shot Jesse in the back <laughs> of the head, um, it was point-blank range with a forty four. The bullet allegedly didn't go through his head. Firearms experts, a lady from, I can't remember her name right now, from New Mexico, examined that and said there's no way. A fort, she, she worked with the New Mexico State Police. It was a firearms ballistics expert. Said there's no way at point-blank range with a forty four that the bullet would have, wouldn't have gone through his head, and he likely wouldn't have had a face
0: Yeah. just
3: from the, you know, the size and power of a gun like that, a .44. Um, so and not only that, the uh, the room. If you've ever been in that room where he was said to have been killed, it's a museum to this day in Saint Joseph, Missouri. Those the ceilings are so short, a man would have to be under five feet tall to have to stand on a chair to straighten or dust a, photo, a picture. It's a very low ceiling. He wouldn't have needed a chair it, by any means. So you know, there's a lot of discrepancies on that. When they went, they Right after the shooting, officials re, uh, went to uh, the James Farm in Kearney, Missouri, a few miles south of St. Joseph. They got Jesse's mother, Zerelda, brought her to the house to identify the body. She walked in, looked at the body, and is quoted as saying, Gentlemen, you have made a mistake. That is not my son. She was taken out of the room and a few minutes later came back in crying, putting on a show, and cursing everyone who had killed her poor boy. I think it dawned on her that you know she needed to she needed to play along with it because that was Jesse's chance at living a peaceful life in Texas. Um, at the coroner's inquest the next day, they questioned his wife, uh, alleged wife Zerelda uh, Z. Mims, sorry, Z. Mims, who was also the first cousin of both Wood and Jesse. Um, they questioned her. She had no she she been married for years allegedly to jesse had two children with jesse yet when they questioned her she didn't know how old he was whether or not he was missing a finger on one of his hands and a lot of other details about him she just didn't know but when they asked her about her jewelry that she had in the house at the time of the shooting she could mention it down to fine detail every piece she had you know what engravings or monograms were on it down to and every last diamond in each brooch she had. So it was kind of funny. She didn't know a thing about the guy she was allegedly married to and had children with, but she knew every detail of all the jewelry she owned. And the, the, it, the, it, oh, go
1: ahead. I was just going to say um, in the Phillips collection photo. Mm -hmm. That's the one of the man in the coffin and the 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 uh, uh, mourners standing next to the the slightly raised coffin. Um, There does not seem to be an exit wound in the face. No. Like yeah, you know, like you said, uh yeah, uh, you know, probably yeah, you know, even a mortician at at that time probably would have uh yeah, you know, uh, and uh recommended to the family to have a closed casket.
0: Yeah. Uh yeah,
1: you know, this is, uh, this looks, you know, like a pretty you know, uh unnerving photo, but it's not
3: uh, grotesque. Exactly. And yeah, a 44 to the back of the head at point-blank range would have been very grotesque.
1: Yeah, and and there's not and like you said, there's not, uh, the exit wound is probably going to remove most of the face. Uh, It's all there you know the face looks intact. There, you know, you've presented several photos. Uh, you know, the funeral photo, as well as some of these um, marriage photos with. Um, there, were, uh, Frank and Jesse's.
3: Yeah,
1: of mom. Yeah, yeah. Where it's it's like the same woman keeps reappearing over, uh, you know, several years of you know when these photos were taken. Where you know she she seems to have a shawl uh, draped over the you know where you know where the uh, arm was. Uh, blown off. Yeah, yeah blown off, uh, dismembered. Right? Yeah. You know, uh, uh, it, it 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 just seems like there's something more to the story with you know the the same person showing up. I you know it's like I I, I just can't believe in the 1860s, 70s, 80s that. Uh, there, there would be too many women That uh, w- would be missing an arm Exactly
2: Not only that But we also have a picture um, It's a historically accepted photo Of of his mother wearing a dress With a certain pattern And
0: oh, okay. we
2: also have a photo of That was in our family uh, records Of the same woman Wearing the same dress same pattern.
3: Same missing arm.
1: Same, same
2: dress.
1: Yeah. Everything. Okay, uh, that's the one on page thirty-four, uh, next to the uh the, gra- the, grave monument.
2: Right. Yeah.
0: Yep.
2: Yeah, and, and that's the one. Yeah, and that I found a photo in our photo album of um our family members I was just looking through it one day and I found her and she had the same dress and the same pattern and we had that um, verified and confirmed it's the same pattern same dress everything same same woman yeah I mean there's just so many photos out there that match up to the historically accepted photos it's it's not with just his mom but other family members
3: yeah, and there were uh, there are so many other pieces of evidence we haven't gone over, but yeah. like uh for example, at the funeral that was supposedly Jesse's funeral, uh you know, other than the photo Teresa discovered with Jesse standing there next to his mother during the funeral. Mm-hmm. Um his mother, his aunt, Jesse's aunt came up to view the body in the coffin, and there was there were a lot of reporters and uh, hundreds of people there. Um they, she, she came up, walked up to the casket to view the body, and said, "That's not the Jesse I know." And Jesse's mother Zarelda said, Shh, "That's my rabbit's foot." And I thought that's that would be a very odd thing, calling your dead son your lucky charms. You know, <laughs> that just seemed seemed interesting. And that that's no proof, but it's just one more little piece of of trivia that just sounds it just bolsters our case for sure.
1: And then we can get to the well documented four exhumations. (laughs) Uh, They are uh, very interesting how they don't prove. J- Jesse did die in uh from the gunshot wound in 1882.
2: Exactly.
1: uh uh, uh, uh I, I they kind of confuse this uh story even more, but they, they don't uh really make any kind of case that okay. Yeah, the story ended in 1882, and the search is over.
0: Exactly.
1: Uh, so, so, yeah, let's. You know T- Tracy wanted to start with. You know, yeah. um, so, say the first uh, 1902 exhumation. Uh, you know, he's the the body was found buried face down.
2: Oh yeah, which is uh, really you odd. Any, you, know, and, you, know, you
1: don't have that in the photo in the well, funeral photo.
3: Yeah. Well and also into his face. Yeah, he was allegedly buried you know, buried at the James Farm outside of Kearney, Missouri in eighteen eighty two. Then in nineteen oh two the family exhumed the grave and moved it to Kearney, Missouri, the cemetery a few miles away in Kearney, the Mount, Mount Olivet Cemetery, and reburied it in that was nineteen oh two. And the um uh, they buried the body. They said they were also afraid of uh, souvenir hunters or somebody coming and digging him up. And I could imagine why the family would be afraid, because they didn't want somebody proving, you know, or finding out it wasn't Jesse, but at the same time, um, you know, they, they reburied it in 1902. In 1978, the curator of the James Farman Museum did an amateur exhumation, or not an, not an exhumation. He just dug up parts of the yard. Found a human tooth, a dog tooth, a hog tooth, animal bones, and some just uh, different bones. Uh, he put them all in a Tupperware bowl and would pass them out to to friends and people he wanted to impress, I guess. And uh, so a lot of people had touched this tooth that that they later used for testing. Um, but that was 1978. Then 1995, they wanted to prove once and for all to the world that Jesse died as history stated and they did you know they they set up this exhumation the guy they hired to do the exhumation was James E Stars a professor of law and he had nothing to he, he was not qualified as a forensics expert or a forensic anthropologist or he didn't have the right qualifications it would be kind of like hiring oh, a jet pilot to fix your transmission you know he might know how but he wasn't qualified he wasn't a professional uh, mechanic so you know it was the same same line of thought i thought that was strange
2: well, well yeah.
3: go ahead um there
2: were just there were a lot of discrepancies a lot of things that um cast doubt on the dna findings that they had it it was a lot of shady underhanded things happening um but to begin with, and I didn't mean to interrupt you, Danny, but I wanted oh, to I wanted to make the point that history stated when they buried Jesse, he was buried in a metal casket. When they exhumed the casket, he was it wasn't a metal one that they found, it was a wooden one. So that was one discrepancy. <laughs> um, but yeah, sorry, Danny, you can go on. I just wanted oh, to get that yeah, out.
3: And, well like the the uh, at the time there's an attorney named Stephen Caruso. Um, at the time, he was the Clay County Commissioner, and he he was in charge of, or he had possession for for you know in he was representing the the James Farman Museum. He had possession of the tooth, and that was you know that was dug up in the yard in nineteen or yeah 1978, and he had what they claimed was a sample of Jesse's hair. Well, he he said he he couldn't, he didn't agree with the exhumation at all because the way it was handled and the people they hired, instead of getting professionals, they got people who weren't even in that field to do the work and pretend to be experts, you know, to the media. Um, Like James E. Starrs being a law professor instead of a forensics expert. But they, uh, he didn't agree with it. He said it was, in his words, a tawdry sideshow. And my mother and I interviewed him in person. He told us the hair that they sampled, that they claimed was Jesse's hair, um, wasn't Jesse's hair. It wasn't even the hair that he had in possession. He pulled the hair out of his friend's head, John Hartman, who was the Clay County Parks Director, and submitted that. Uh, He said the tooth had basically the same origins, but he didn't go into detail as to where he got the tooth he, he submitted. He said everything they tested had nothing to do with Jesse, and he could guarantee that. Um so, according to the clay county commissioner who's who 's today an attorney he the, everything they tested had nothing to do with jesse and the reason they got a court order to get that tooth and hair sample was because James Stars, who claimed he got the tooth you know he tries to make it look like the grave the grave he exhumed gave you know told the truth about the historical story a version and they got nothing worth any of value, you know, forensic value or DNA out of that grave, but they did find. And he dug the, the entire grave up, making a show of it. They found a woman's partial, partial skeleton of a woman, and a man in the grave. The man in the grave was buried face down, and there were also you know male and female clothes found in in the grave as well. So there's no really no proof as to whose grave that was and why were there multiple bodies in the grave. And then, uh, on top of that, the guy they tested the DNA against, who was allegedly a descendant from the James line, um, his if you do his genealogy, and we point that out in the book, he, his genealogy is very questionable, highly questionable. There's no, no proof that he is who he or claims he is
2: yeah, so the DNA was basically uh, Professor Stars made a statement saying with ninety nine percent accuracy, they can say that based off the DNA uh, that was uh, taken from the hair would say it was Jesse James, but we got proof that the hair wasn't even from Jesse James so and he based all of his findings. On um, sources that weren't reliable, they didn't even they weren't even from Jesse. They Nothing were from people, up. living people at the time.
3: And they never made public the DNA. Yeah. They, you know, out in in public, they would they would claim that now it's up to you to prove that we're wrong, and we have mom and Teresa and I have proven them to be wrong. We have more evidence than they've ever had. And um, they they won't put their DNA out to the public to be tested against.
2: Yeah, and They're, and we have yeah. I'm not sure if you said this, Danny, but um, we have had some DNA testing that does link us to the James family. That's true, definitely.
3: Um, we there was a living descendant of Zarelda. They were they were testing mitochondrial DNA, which passes down the female line of a family. Um, mm-hmm. So we found. Of a lady who came from a straight line of women, through you know, from the James family down to you know her day. Her name was Sue Laura Hill. She was an elderly lady. She passed away. She was living in uh, uh, California. Before she passed away, her doc she went to the hospital, had her doctor um, take a blood sample and submit it through strict chain of custody to a doctor we use for our DNA. And this doctor does, you know, he works for state, local, and federal law enforcement agencies and other people doing, you know, hes highly qualified. And um, anyway, he, he tested our mother's DNA against Sue Laura Hell's DNA and said there is a definite relationship. He said in to basically dotting all our I's and crossing all our T's, he wants us to, to get DNA samples up each generation from us to our great-great-grandfather, and match that to Sue Laura Hales Or see if it matches But he said just testing our mothers To Sue Laura Hales There is a definite relationship Which is more than the James Farman Museum Has ever presented
1: Okay And The toxicology oh, mm-hmm. uh, Teresa did you want to say something
2: No no go ahead I'm sorry
1: Okay uh, You know you do cover the toxicology report Um, in the state bones and hair were tested for morphine codeine and cocaine none were found but But, yeah uh, later on in Jesse's diary he does go to O'Brien's in October of 1872 for painkillers, which probably had some kind of uh, like opium type, you know, de- derived medication, which would take us back to you know probably morphine,
3: yeah, or some form of narcotic,
1: yeah so 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 there's uh you know the importance of what your inclusion of the diary at at the end of the book you know kind of backs up uh you, you know what what you're claiming you know, the arguments you make about the the faulty test it, even though the painkiller doesn't it, it, Jesse doesn't say exactly what painkiller you know probably at that time you know, there you know there uh, you know, was a lot of uh, opium being used because of all the uh, you know maiming and mm-hmm.
3: uh,
1: uh, trauma from the recently concluded civil war
3: and even back in those days it was common for people you could go to a pharmacy and easily purchase cocaine for a bad headache.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: It was that which shocked me when I found that out. I thought, "Wow, I you know I'd never really got into that stuff." But
2: but yeah, and I think the main thing you know we like to get out, even if people don't believe our theory, you know we like to get out, at least go back and read the night the findings that disprove that they they didn't prove anything. I mean, it doesn't prove our you know James L Courtney was Jesse James from this, but it does prove that they didn't prove the body in Missouri was Jesse James either.
3: And as far as evidence goes, we're we're 100% convinced our story is the right story. Oh yeah. And we have much more evidence than they have ever presented.
2: Oh yeah.
3: And we've got photographic evidence which was also verified by forensic photographic experts.
0: Mm-hmm. Whereas
3: the guy they used to use was a water painter. Yep. I mean he, he painted with watercolors.
2: Yeah.
3: And yeah. That so, was his only qualification.
2: Yeah, plus the link you know, we have yeah, the photos. Um, he had a journal that had his the signature J. James written in his journal.
3: And the thing is when you come, you know, I used to get mad thinking about how they 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 would they and to this day they refuse to who see evidence if it goes against their story, but the whole th- this entire mess started because Jesse needed to fake his death so he could live a normal life. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, instead of it started with him, and I can see why he did it, but my it started. I mean, it it sure left a big mystery in in our official history books. So yeah, and so it's his fault for starting that, but. But when you've got the evidence, it's nice when people look at it with an open mind and objectively, you know, review the evidence.
2: Yep.
3: And then when you catch their side in all these stories and, but in some cases, just outright lies. Oh yeah. It, that's when it, it's 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 sickening in many ways when you see how people act over things like that.
2: Yeah, with uh, DNA, you need to use a strict chain of custody. Um, to get accurate data for the DNA testing, and they didn't use any chain of custody. They didn't follow the chain of custody guidelines.
3: Yeah, and Um, like uh, one of the forensic ladies told my mother and sister, uh, DNA doesn't lie, people do.
2: Yep. (laughs) Yeah.
3: Okay.
1: And Sunday night you had a real... Lawyer, judge, uh, you know, talk with you, you know, about reviewing the DNA case. Uh, you know, so uh, how, how did you like having Michael Hall, who's going to be our guest next next week? And you know, just quick, quick plug. But uh, how, how did you like ha- having a? Real lawyer, uh, you know, you're presenting information to a uh, real lawyer. You know, uh, how how did that affect you to listen to him weigh the case?
3: Well, it's it's I, I as long as when they, I love when they when lawyers or people of that mindset review something. You know, the case, the evidence. Just because mm-hmm. they're 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 it's a it's they do it in a methodical way. It's a scientific method in many ways. They just they go over it professionally, keeping an open mind and weighing the facts. As long yeah. as you know, as long as a person's honest, that's the best you can. That's the best you can do.
0: Yeah, you know,
2: just
3: have it reviewed by professionals who are used to doing this. And we've talked to a lot of attorneys in the past who, uh, it it the questions they come up with helps uh, any researcher who's doing research because he realized that you have to you have to come up with conclusive evidence. Mhm.
2: Which mom did, you know, yeah. and we we feel like you know, she was able to back up her claims because she did use.
3: And that's the funny thing that used to irritate mom. It's not funny, but it used to irritate all of us uh you, you know, when you're trying to Prove your story, and your detractors and everybody else expects you to go through it with a fine-tooth comb and prove everything. You have to have a source, and that's only that should be everyone should be held to the same standard. The part that was uh, frustrating for all of us was the James Farman Museum and our detractors weren't held to the same standard. They they try to demand everyone else follow this strict standard and all the guidelines. Which we have, yet they just talk to the media and make a claim and it's it's taken as a fact. Yeah. Okay. And well like like the, the- perfect example of that is the guy they hired to head the exhumation. He was a law professor and he didn't when they asked him why he didn't exhume Zerelda, because it would have been so much easier and test her yeah. <laughs> He said right. Missouri law stated that they couldn't do that because she didn't die under suspicious circumstances. And everybody believed it. Nobody checked out that claim. Mom checked it out. She called the she contacted the attorney general for the state of Missouri and we found out there there that was an, a bold faced lie. There was no law stating that. He just made it up and said it. And later he admitted to it, but he all he said was quickly I embellished, and that's all he said. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, yeah, that's just a nice way of saying you lied to mm. to everybody.
2: Yeah, so, he got busted.
3: Yeah. Okay. So, and
1: another interesting aspect of your book is, you know, the journal that that's reproduced is uh covers a uh, few years but all of 1873 is missing um
0: hmm.
1: if you look on you know page 13 or so uh you know where you have a number of uh, of the uh bank and train robberies listed it, 1873 was a busy year. Uh, it was, you know, for the James Gang. What do you attribute the missing year? Uh, is you know, uh, you know, did the pages fall out because the diary was so old? You know you know, is he can Jesse concealing something? Uh, do you have an explanation
0: for that? So,
3: there's no, the, the diary is in good shape. There's no page there. It's not, it doesn't appear to have had any pages fallen out. There are some in later years where people have torn things out. We don't know if that was Jesse that tore a couple of pages out or if one of his relatives, one of the, one of our relatives did, but, um, before it got in our hands, but they um i we we're under the belief, and there's no really no answer for that other than from Jesse himself, which would be impossible now, but we believe that during the really busy years he just left things out. He was either too busy or I don't know maybe he didn't take the diary with him or he was too busy at the time. I'm not sure, and if he would have taken the diary with him. In some of those cases, that may have been incriminating if he would have been, uh, or could have blown his cover if he would, if something would have happened. Maybe it was a, maybe he was under a lot of uh, you know, potential danger and didn't want want to be known about his his other family if something should happen to him.
0: Okay,
1: and yeah, you know, Dan, just a, you know, we're coming down to like eight minutes or so. Um, I just have a quick question for you. Um, On page one, in June of 1872, Jesse talks about the bee gum tree. Okay, you do beekeeping as well. So, do you think that's a trait that you inherit, inherited from Jesse?
3: <laughs> I know he's—he he was a big reason. We've got photos of of Jesse tending some of his hives when he was an older man, and uh, that was one reason we got into beekeeping. My nephew got into it, and then I decided to get into it just because I love eating the honey. But. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah the bee gum tree was an interesting thing and i've always i've heard theories on that, but I'm not really sure that that's that makes that i'm always curious about what exactly the bee gum tree was um it it but yeah that's that's one thing that led us into beekeeping
0: <laughs> <laughs> interesting
1: so hey uh, uh to you know Teresa the book comes out. Uh, today or
0: yeah, just yeah. P-
1: p- finish listening to the show, then o- order it. But uh, <laughs> uh, where can people get the uh,
3: book?
2: Um, off the Inner Traditions website. Um, I want to say the Simon and Schuster website. Is yeah. that correct, Danny? Yeah,
3: you can get it at innertraditions. dot com.
2: Yeah, Simon, uh, and Simon and Schuster.
3: Schuster, Barnes and Noble, Amazon, and books a million literally anywhere books are sold you can get the book
2: okay
1: Teresa is there anything concluding uh, words you want to say about Jesse living another 50 years after he supposedly died,
2: well, this is again speculation on our on our behalf, but we think that maybe you know he had a daughter named Ida Florence Courtney. Um, she was born April fifth, eighteen eighty two. He supposedly, they said, history states, died April third, eighteen eighty two. And again, this is just speculation, but we sometimes wonder, was that the reason that he, you know, he faked his death so he could live out a normal life and take care of his children? Um, And we just have a lot of questions regarding all that. But when he also, when he came to Texas, not only was he a legend as Jesse James, but we found out he was a legend as James L. Courtney, under his assumed name in Texas as well. Um, he just—he was a very interesting, fascinating man, and I just wish I could go back in time and actually talk to him to fill in some of the holes that we haven't figured out yet. I—I I would mm-hmm. love to just sit down and have a talk with this man.
1: <laughs> oh, and, yeah, uh, Dan, you want to wrap up any? including remarks about.
3: Okay. Yeah. Uh, Well, Teresa had said that perfectly. We thought, you know, a lot of people, we always felt that was one of the reasons he wanted to fake his death. It it was an opportunity he couldn't, it wasn't planned for, but it was an opportunity they took advantage of. Um, A lot of people don't realize he tried to fake his death in 1879, several years earlier, that attempt failed because there was no body. Um, then when Height, his first cousin, got shot, that was the perfect attempt, perfect moment. Although sad for him, I'm sure, because it was his, his cousin and fellow gang member. But they used that, you know, one life lost, but it helped him gain his life as a, a normal person, um, or at mm-hmm. least keep, keep low low key over the years. Even after the fake death, for years, he was known to have done a lot of. He had done. He had been involved in burying the treasures, uh, various treasures. He'd, he, in his diary, people would come to him and exchange gold for, for cash. So it was almost like an underground banker in a way. Um, he
0: was
3: hmm. a very interesting man, and there are so many more mysteries involved around him we would love to find, and I'm sure it will take the rest of our life researching just to know half of the mysteries, if that much. Um, it, it, oh, and if people want to find the book, they can, like we've mentioned, they can find it anywhere books are sold, online or in physical stores. It's in an ebook and or paperback. Um, our website is – well, we've got several. The one for Jesse is jessewjames.com, and my personal website is authordanduke.com. Teresa and I are both on Twitter and Facebook.
1: Okay, and – now that the the second book is out, uh, you are working on the concluding part of the
3: trilogy. Yes, sir. Working on the third one as, as we speak.
1: Okay. Well, and, not right
3: now, but <laughs> as soon as okay, we finish off this interview, I'll be back to <laughs> typing. So. Okay. All right.
1: So, And what well, we're probably looking at next year –
3: Yes. I'm, that's what I, uh, my best guess is. Probably in 2021 for the third book.
1: Okay. okay. All right. That, that sounds like a good place to wrap up the show. I just want to thank both of you for being fantastic guests. And you know, if you uh, like being on uh,
3: Nightlight, send us a gold bar.
2: Oh, yeah. I loved it. We <laughs> We appreciate that you both had us on here, and thank yeah, you. I greatly
3: appreciate it, and thanks. It was, yep. It's always a pleasure talking to
2: you, oh, yep. yeah. you and yep.
3: Barbara. Yep,
2: yep. both
1: uh, of y'all. Yeah, uh, she didn't fire me after that in- introduction, <laughs> so. But, but uh, you know, I'll, I'll hear about it after, afterwards. I, but uh, I didn't
2: fire you yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. But, uh, I like that the key word is yet.
0: <laughs>
1: but we, yeah, we, yeah, we can. Yeah, you're welcome to come back to t- talk about the third book, and you know, we didn't get to everything tonight. So, you know, yeah, uh, we'll, you know, we will uh, do this again some sometime soon. We'll, we will be in touch, and that's a good place to wrap up everything. So, we will see everyone. I uh, think thurs- Thursday night, Barbara, Is that right? Yeah, I think yep, it's Thursday, Thursday night.
2: Tonight
0: okay
1: so uh, we'll see we'll see you in a couple of days Th- thank you again for everything and uh have a good night.